chapter 2, verses 25 through 52, verses 25 through 28. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him, and it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus, to do for him after the custom of the law, then he took him up in his arms, and blessed God, and said, Burkett notes, No sooner was our Savior brought into the temple and presented to the Lord by his holy parents, but in springs old Simon, a pious and devout man, who had a revelation from God that he should not die until he had with his bodily eyes seen the promised Messiah. Accordingly, he takes up the child Jesus in his arms, but hugs him faster by his faith than by his feeble arms, and with a ravishment of heart praises God for the sight of his Savior, whom he calls the consolation of Israel. That is, the Messiah, whom the Israel of God had long looked and waited for, and now took comfort and consolation in. Note here, one, how God always performs his promises to his children with wonderful advantages. Simon had a revelation that he should not die until he had seen Christ. Now he not only sees him, but feels him too. He not only has him in his eye, but holds him in his hands. Though God stays long before he fulfills his promises, he certainly comes at last with double reward for our expectation. Note, too, that the coming of the Messiah in the fullness of time and his appearing in our flesh and nature was and is a matter of unspeakable consolation to the Israel of God. And now that he is come, let us live by him in faith and the foundation of all comfort and consolation both in life and death. Alas, what are all other consolations besides this and without this? They are impotent and insignificant consolations. They are dying and perishing consolations. Nay, they are sometimes afflictive and distressing consolations. The bitterness accompanying them is sometimes more than the sweetness that is tasted in them. But in Christ, who is the consolation of Israel, there is light without darkness, joy without sorrow, and consolation without any mixture of discomfort. Verses 29 through 33. Lord, now lettest thou servant depart in peace, according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Burkett notes, these words are a sweet conical or swan-like song of old Simon a little before his dissolution. He had seen the Messiah before by faith, now by sight, and wishes to have his eyes closed that he might see nothing after this desirable sight. It is said of some Turks that after they've seen Mohammed's tomb, they put out their eyes that they may never defile them after they've seen so glorious an object. Thus did Simon desire to see no more of this world after he had seen Christ, the Savior of the world, but sues for his demission. Lord, let thy servant depart. Note here, one, that a good man, having served his generation, and God in his generation, faithfully, is weary of the world and willing to be dismissed from it. Two, that the death of a good man is nothing else but a quiet and peaceable departure.
it is a departure in peace to the God of peace. 3. That it is only a spiritual sight of Christ by faith that can welcome the approach of death and render it an object desirable to the Christian's choice. He only that can say, My eyes have seen thy salvation, will be able to say, Lord, let thy servant depart. Observe farther. Holy Simon, having declared the faithfulness of God to himself and the gift of Christ, next he celebrates the mercy of God in bestowing this invaluable gift of a Savior upon the whole world. Observe farther. Holy Simon, having declared the faithfulness of God to himself and the gift of Christ, next he celebrates the mercy of God in bestowing this invaluable gift of a Savior upon the whole world. The world consists of Jews and Gentiles. Christ is a light to the one and the glory of the other. A light to the blind and dark Gentiles and the glory of the renowned Church of the Jews, the Messiah being promised to them, being born and bred up with them, living amongst them, preaching his doctrine to them, and working his miracles before them. And thus was Christ the glory of his people, Israel. Verses 34 and 35. And Simon blessed them, and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Burkett notes, two things are here observed, Simon's blessing and Simon's prediction. He blessed them, that is, the parents and the child Jesus, not authoritatively, but prophetically, declaring how God would bless them. His prediction is twofold, one, concerning Christ, two, concerning his mother. Concerning Christ, Simon declares that he should be for the rise of many in Israel, namely, all such as should embrace and obey his doctrine and imitate and follow his example, and for the fall of others, that is, shall bring punishment and ruin upon all obdurate and impenitent sinners, and a sign to be spoken against, that is, he shall be as a mark for obstinate sinners to set themselves against. Christ himself, when here in the world, was a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to the men of the world enduring contradiction of sinners against himself, both the virulence of their tongues and the violence of their hands. Doubtless God's first design in sending his Son into the world was that through him the world might be saved. John 3.16 But to such persons whose mind had no relish for spiritual things, he became accidentally a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Secondly, concerning the mother of Christ, Simon declares that the sight of her son's bitter suffering would, like a sword, pierce her heart. For though he might be born, yet he should not die without the pains of his mother, as if the throes suffered by other women at the birth were reserved for her to endure at the death of her son. The sufferings of the Holy Jesus on the cross were as a sword or a dagger at the heart of the Holy Virgin, and she suffered with him both as a tender mother and as a sympathizing member of his body. Yea, suffered martyrdom after him, saith Epiphanius. Verses 36 through 38. And there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Aser, and she was of a great age, and she had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity, and she was a widow of about fourscore and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fasting and prayers night and day. 
And she, coming in that instant, gave thanks likewise unto the Lord, and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Burkett notes, Simon is seconded by Anna, a prophetess, and she also declares that the child Jesus was the promised and expected Messiah, and thus Christ was proclaimed in the temple by two heralds of different sexes. Concerning this aged woman, Anna, it is said that she departed not from the temple night nor day. Not that she lived and lodged there, but by her never departing from, understand her daily repairing to the temple. That which is done often is said in scripture to be always done. We are said to do a thing continually when we do it seasonably. Thus, we pray continually when we pray as often as duty requires us to pray. Learn hence that such duties as a Christian performs out of conscience, he will perform with constancy and perseverance. Nature will have her good moods, but grace is steady. The devotions of a pious soul, like Anna's, are as constant but more frequent than the returns of day and night. Verses 39 and 40. And when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Burkett notes, Here we see the truth and reality of Christ's human nature. He grew as we do, from infancy to childhood, from childhood to youth and manhood. To his divine nature, no ascension or addition could be made, for that which is infinite cannot increase. The deity was infinite in Christ, so was not the humanity, but capable of additions. And accordingly, as Christ grew up in the stature of his body, the facilities of his mind increased through the grace and power of God's Spirit upon him. Verses 41 and 42. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was twelve years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the fast. Burkett notes, Observe here, the person making this yearly journey to Jerusalem, our Savior's parents and himself. One, Joseph, who is called Christ's father, not that he was his natural father, for Christ had no father upon earth, but Joseph was his reputed or supposed father, his nursing father, who by the appointment of God took a fatherly care of him and his father-in-law being husband to Mary. Two, Mary, the mother of Christ, went up to Jerusalem with her husband and her son. God commanded only the males to go up to Jerusalem. The weaker sex were excused, but the Holy Virgin, well knowing the spiritual profit of that long journey, would not stay home. Such as will go no farther than they are dragged in religious exercises are strangers to the Virgin's piety and devotion. But three, The child Jesus, in his minority, goes up with his parents to this holy solemnity, thereby no doubt intending our instruction, when we are young, to give God an early possession of our souls, to consecrate the virgin operations of our mind to him, and in our youth to keep close to the worship and service of God, when we are so importunately courted by the world. Observe farther, this holy family came not to look at the feast and be gone, but they duly stayed out all the appointed time. Joseph's calling and the virgin's household business could neither keep them at home nor hasten them home before the public duties in the temple were dispatched and ended. All worldly business must give place to divine offices. We must attend God's services to the end, except we will depart unblessed. Observe, lastly, the constant returns of their devotion. They went up to Jerusalem every year, 
no difficulties, no discouragements could hinder their attendance, though it is no certain evidence of the truth of grace to frequent the public assemblies, yet it is an infallible sign of want of grace customarily to neglect them. Verses 43 to 45. And when they had fulfilled these days, as they returned, the child, Jesus, tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. Burkett notes, The service of the temple being ended, they returned home to Nazareth. Religious duties are not to be attended to the prejudice and neglect of our particular callings. God calls us as well from his house as to his house. They are much mistaken who think God is pleased with nothing but devotion. He that says, Be reverent in spirit, serving the Lord, also says, Be not slothful in business. Piety and industry must keep pace with one another. God is as well pleased with our return to Nazareth as our going up to Jerusalem. Observe farther, though Joseph and Mary returned home, the child Jesus, unknown to them, stays behind. Their back was no sooner turned upon the temple, but his face was towards it. Christ had business in that place which his parents knew not of. They, missing him, seek him out in the company, concluding him with their kinfolk and acquaintances. From whence we may gather that the parents of Christ knew him to be of a sweet and sociable, of a free and conversative, not a sullen and morose disposition. They did not suspect him to be wandering the fields or deserts, but when they missed him, sought him among their kinfolk. Had he not wanted to converse formally with them, he had not now been sought amongst them. Our blessed Savior, when on earth, did not take pleasure in a wild retiredness, in a forward austerity, but in a mild affability, an amicable conversation, and herein also his example is very instructive to us. Verses 46 and 47. And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, the place where the child Jesus is found, in the temple. Where could there be a more likely place to find the Son of God than in the house of his father? No wonder that his parents found him there, but that they went not first to seek him there. Observe, two, At twelve years old, our Savior disputes in the temple with the doctors of the law. Never had those great rabbis heard the voice of such a tutor. Thus, in our Savior's non-age, he gives us a proof of his proficiency, even as the spring shows what we may hope for of the tree in summer. Our Savior discovered his accomplishments by degrees. Had his perfections appeared all at once, they had rather dazzled than delighted the eyes of the beholder. Even as the sun should confound all eyes, should it appear at its first rising in its full strength. Christ could now have taught all those rabbis the deep mysteries of God, but being not yet called by his Father to be a public teacher, he contents himself to hear with diligence and to ask with modesty. Learn hence that parts and abilities for the ministerial function are not sufficient to warn our undertaking of it without a regular call. Christ himself would not run, no, not on his heavenly Father's errand, before he was sent much less should we. Verse 48. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee, sorrowing. 
Burkett notes, Without doubt, it was impossible to express the sorrow of the Holy Virgin's soul when all the searching of three days could bring them no tiding of their Holy Child. How did she blame her eyes for once looking off this object of her love and spend both days and night in a passionate bemoaning of her loss? O blessed Savior, who can miss thee and not mourn for thee? Never any soul conceived thee by faith, but was apprehensive of thy worth and sensible of thy want. What comforts are we capable of while we want thee? And what relish can we taste in an earthly delight without thee? Verse 49. And he said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I was about my father's business? Marquette notes. Observe here that Christ blames not his parents for their solicitous care of him, but shows them how able he was to live without any dependency upon them and their care and also to let them understand that higher respects had called him away, that as he had meat to eat, so had he work to do, which they knew not of. For, says he, wist thee not that I must be about my father's business? Although I owe respect to you as my natural parents, yet my duty to my heavenly father must be preferred. I am about his work, promoting his glory, and propagating his truth." We have also a Father in heaven. Oh, how good it is to steal away from our earthly distractions that we may employ ourselves immediately in his service, that when the world makes inquiry after us, we may say, as our Savior did before us, Wist ye not that I must be about my Father's business? Verses 50 through 52. And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto him. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in the favor with God and man. Burkett notes, The most material passage of our Savior's life for the first twelve years is here recorded, namely, his disputing with the doctors in the temple. How he spent the next eighteen years, namely, till he was thirty, the scripture doth not mention. It is said here that he lived with and was subject to his parents obeying their commands and, as it is believed, following their employment, working upon the trade of a carpenter, as was observed, Mark 6, 3. Doubtless he did not live an idle life, and why should he that did not abhor the virgin's womb, a stable, and a manger, be supposed to abhor the work of an honest vocation? Observe farther what a singular pattern is here for children to imitate and follow in their subjection to their parents. If the greatest and highest of mortals think themselves above their parents' command, our Savior did not so. He paid homage to the womb that bare him, and to his supposed father that provided for him. Let a person be never so high above others, he is still below and inferior to his parents. Jesus dwelt with his parents, and was subject unto them. Observe, lastly, a further evidence of our Savior's humanity, with respect to his human nature, which consisted of body and soul. He did grow and improve, his body and stature, his soul and wisdom, and he became every day a more eminent and illustrious person in the eyes of all, being highly in favor both with God and man. Vain, then, is the conclusion of the Socinians from this text that Christ could not be God, because God cannot wax strong in spirit or increase in wisdom, as Christ is said here to do, for God's perfections are infinite and will admit of no increase." Whereas it is plain that this increase here attributed to Christ in age and stature respects his humanity, the wisdom and endowments of his human mind were capable of increase, though his divine perfections were absolutely perfect. So glad are these men 
of the least shadow of a text that they may cloud the divinity of the Son of God.